everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes for another Bible book overview. Happy to be looking again at the Minor Prophets today. I have really enjoyed talking about the Minor Prophets. They're often overlooked, but just absolute gems in the Old Testament. They really are. And in fact, this is our last Minor Prophet. In fact, I think we're within, you know, six or seven books of being done here. But it's fitting in some ways, not that we planned this out with this idea in mind, but it's fitting in some ways to have Micah be the last of the minor prophets, because as we get into the book of Micah, he is connected to some of the other prophets in a really interesting way. Almost if you took Micah as a lens, you can see a lot of what's going on prophetically and culturally and politically in the history of Israel and Judah. So it's almost like we saved the... The not just the best for last, we save the wrap up for last to where I'm kind of hoping as we go through here, you'll see as you're looking through the book of Micah, that it's a constellation of the whole prophetic part of the Old Testament in this one short prophecy. Right. Well, as far as background, you know, here we are in the eighth century B.C., the 700s. And by now, you probably have a, a good memory of what's going on then in, in the ancient world. But basically, the Assyrians in the north, modern day Iraq, they have a large empire, and they're influencing uh, the events of the time. Micah is prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah, and then there's still the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember your history, the Assyrians are going to invade. And in 722 BC, they're going to conquer the northern half, Israel, and it's, it's capital of Samaria. And they're going to deport basically a lot of the Jews from there. Then they're going to come back a few years later. And in 701 BC, they're going to try to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Hezekiah is able to, relying on God, he foils their attempt to take Jerusalem. So Micah is prophesying in this time period, and the book opens and gives us some of the kings uh, of the time he's prophesying, but roughly he's prophesying sometime before 735 BC, and then all the way into the time of Hezekiah, so 710, 705. So he's got a 25 or 30 year career, if you will, of speaking to God's people. And he's going to preach before the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom. He's going to be preaching afterwards. He's also, and this may be what you're talking about, he's a great lens to a lot of what's going on at this time, not just in the themes, but he's also a contemporary of several other prophets uh, at this time. Yeah, probably most notably, he is a contemporary, a younger contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And his book and Isaiah's share some very similar qualities. And I, I don't think that this is literary dependence as much as I think it is. There is a group of these prophets in Israel, and they are talking to kings, they're talking to the people, they're making public gestures and pronouncements together. Mm -hmm. And so just as you see the sons of the prophets in these different cities, when Elijah and Elisha are alive and are kind of leading this group, you see these prophets depending on and echoing each other in their books, because I think they were also part of a group at this point who are interfacing with kings. They're interfacing with other prophets. They're interfacing with the people. 
And so we see that Isaiah and, and Micah are saying a lot of the same things to the extent that if, if you're right. looking for parallels, uh, both of these books open with the temple vision, the, the Lord who whose glory fills the temple, like Isaiah chapter six. And both of them are calling for God to come down from his temple onto the earth and do what he's promised to do. So you see that in Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, another kind of peculiar similarity is in Micah 1 8. You see him say, For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. And I think that that's in the first person. That's not a caricature. I really think that's probably what he's doing. And that's the same thing we see Isaiah doing in chapter 20 is he goes around for a really long time naked as kind of a visual parable for the people of Israel. Um, in chapter three, you get a mini servant song. Of course, these are really famous in Isaiah in the 40s and 50s. You get in chapter three, verse eight, gives some really characteristic language of these servant songs. As for me, I'm filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This is pretty similar to what we take to be messianic prophecies in Isaiah, but that the prophet right. himself is being filled with the spirit of God to speak the things that God has for his people. And then the, the most obvious connection between the two is in Micah chapter four, verses one through three, there's an exact quotation or the exact same text as we find in Isaiah chapter two. Now, the commentators go back and forth on who actually came up with this first. And I, I think it probably is some kind of underlying um, prophetic vision that they were all familiar with about the mountain of the, of the house of the Lord being the highest mountain and the nations coming and going to the mountain of the Lord and God judging his peoples. It's a vision of God making things right in Israel on uh, the mountain where the temple is. Now, I would tend to think that Isaiah probably said this first in chapter two, but commentators like Bruce Waltke, who has a great commentary on Micah, thinks that because of the historical setting of chapter four and the historical <laughs> setting in Isaiah of chapter two, it's likely that Micah wrote his part first. And so we really don't know who was first or who came up with this, but it's it's word for word similar in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Micah. And maybe as we'll talk about in a little bit, Micah adds another verse on the end that is really interesting in this context that Isaiah doesn't. So they're taking this prophetic word and they're beginning to apply it in their situation differently. Now, one more thing I'll mention is all of these prophets. So I'm thinking of Isaiah, Hosea, Micah are dependent in some ways on the prophet Amos. So if we we're going to do a prophetic tree, Amos is the trunk, and these other prophets are drawing from his prophecy. Now, Amos doesn't consider himself a vocational prophet like Micah and Isaiah would. He is a shepherd who is coming in mm -hmm. to give a word from the Lord. But the, 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 you can just, the more you dive into this, the more you see that these prophets are all kind of related in their spiritual lineage, and they're all giving a very similar message to the people of Israel. Yes, and I, uh, if I can make a little aside here, you can go uh, to the liberal scholarly side of this and say, by connecting these prophets together because of the similarity of their message, that we're tapping into a human movement. It's a critical movement of the uh, people at the time. It's a social justice movement. In other words, you could take that a lot of places and assume that they're saying the same thing because they're drawing on one another. And that's a point of view. But another point of view that we often forget about is 
it's very likely that the spirit of God is moving and is judging his people. And he is giving this message to all of his prophets to send them out to the people. So a lot of times we'll read this from a very human centric way that this is a movement of people. But I prefer to look at it as it's equally likely, and I would argue more so, that it's a movement of God's spirit. And so the fact that you see similarities here is the fact that God is moving in this, not that these are derivative from one another. Right. I think that definitely the the word of the Lord coming forth from each of these prophets is what God is consistently saying to his people through them. One other interesting thing is we've talked about in the minor prophets quite a bit. There is hardly any information outside of the book itself on some of these prophets. But Micah is the exception to this rule in Jeremiah 26. So this is a little over 100 years later. Right. In Jeremiah 26, he's with the elders of Israel, and it says in verse 17, And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So what you see here is two things that are really interesting for the prophecy of Micah. Number one, in the account of Hezekiah, we get uh, a picture of Isaiah coming in and giving the word of the Lord. But we find out from this prophecy that Micah was also doing this and that he was successful. So he gave the word of the Lord and Hezekiah turned and so did the people of Israel, and God spared them. And we remember that story when Sennacherib comes to Jerusalem. But the second thing we learn is later, when Jerusalem is being besieged again during the time of Jeremiah, and we know at this point it's actually going to fall in 586 right. to Nebuchadnezzar, these people are reflecting on the history of what God has spoken to his people. And you, you do get some wise elders here saying, you know, the prophet came, Hezekiah repented, and God protected Jerusalem. Maybe we should be doing the same thing. Now, of course, in, in that time, they don't do this. They actually reject the counsel of God. But it's interesting to see him pop back up later and be referenced. So his words were well known in Israel because these elders are saying, don't you guys remember the prophecy of Micah? And there they're quoting from Micah chapter 3. They say, don't you guys remember what he said about Jerusalem? Maybe we should listen to that. And then, of course, they don't. But uh, that's an interesting connection for Micah later in the witness of the Old Testament. Yeah, I agree. I think that's very interesting that they're looking back and a lesson to us as well, that they were looking back to God's words, even though it wasn't, you know, bundled into a book you could go buy at, you know, Mardell's. It was, it didn't have the Bible per se, but they were very well aware of this prophet and the word God had given to him. And that's exactly what we're doing today. In fact, that's exactly what we're doing in this podcast is we're looking back at the words God has spoken and then trying to apply them to us today. You know, one thing about the structure of this book that strikes me as we move through these prophets is so often you see this pattern. First, condemnation, 
judgment, if you will, in this case, judgment on Samaria and Jerusalem, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. But you see this indictment of them for going off after other gods, for not being obedient to God. But it's also paired with God, a further looking vision, not only is judgment coming, but God is going to be faithful and raise up a shepherd, raise up a king to bring the faithful remnant back together. And it seems like that pattern, God doesn't leave his people without hope. Mm-hmm. That is a, a really interesting pattern in this book, especially because he's oscillating back and forth the way the book is arranged. He's oscillating back and forth between these messages of condemnation and judgment and these words of comfort for the people of Israel. In fact, I think Micah is arranged differently than most of these books. I do think that um, I, I do think there is probably a final editing that Micah did over his prophetic words together because they're not exactly in chronological order. They're in more of a thematic order in the book of Micah. And you see different organization in these different prophets, uh, particularly like in the book of Jeremiah, where you get the chronological end of the book only about, you know, just over halfway or two thirds of the way through the book. And then you have these oracles that are at the end. And so it's kind of thematically arranged around the emphasis that Jeremiah and probably Baruch wanted for the final form of the book. In Micah, for example, uh, one of the things Bruce Walkey points out is the book is Micah's file of sermons. And this is a great way to understand Micah is right. because you get these little seven or eight verse oracles or these little seven or eight verse sermons. And they are arranged, like he says, pieces of a rose window in a cathedral, pieced together by catchwords and logical particles. So these, this refrain of judgment and relief and judgment and restoration running through the book of Micah sets up a very interesting set and outline of his message. Whereas we can tell in certain places what historical event he's probably referring to, what we can really tell is the whole picture of what God is doing in Israel at this time. That's a really good point and one that we need to remember because as we talked about in the intro, this these sermons, these messages from God in this book span 25, 30 year period. And obviously there are many sermons that he gave that aren't written down in this book. And on the one hand, the sermons that he gave and the messages that he gave over that two or three decades were what were needed to be said to the people at that time. And then when you get the written record of it, and it's not an exhaustive written record, it is composed for future generations. In other words, the sermons were given as people needed then, and the record of them is composed for future generations. I'll tell you what it reminds me of is in the Gospels, as you see, the Synoptic Gospels are also arranged, but fundamentally a little more chronological movement through Jesus' life. And then you see John, which I believe was written much later, and John pays almost no attention to chronology. He's arranging this, and he says so. He says, this is written so you might believe. And he puts together these events in a way that future generations can understand them. And I think that's a really good point that you make, is we read this, and we should recognize this has been preserved for us. And it's a subset of the sermons that he was preaching. Mm -hmm. So if we were going to 
outline or go through the book of Micah, what we're doing is we're oscillating between these messages. So you begin in chapter one with an oracle of judgment. And even though Micah is in the southern kingdom of Judah, he is talking about what's going to happen in the northern kingdom. So he's almost talking about the northern kingdom to warn the southern kingdom. So for example, he's talking about the impending doom that's coming from the Assyrians. And in doing so, he is for uh, he's forecasting almost because it's a warning. It's not just a prediction. It's a warning of what's going to happen to the Southern kingdom with the Babylonians who come in. So he's using what he's prophesying about the Northern kingdom to arrest and convict the Southern kingdom. And so he says, God is going to come and judge basically in chapter one, he's going to come and judge for two Mm -hmm. things throughout this book. There's corruption in leadership and there's corruption in the prophets. So the leaders of Israel have been basically enriching themselves. He makes a reference uh, to Ahab who stole from Naboth's Mm -hmm. vineyard and benefited himself. We've got these leaders that are not leading well and these prophets who are not prophesying well. And as you go through chapter one, he says things like in chapter 115, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for you shall go, for they shall go from you into exile. So he's prophesying about destruction. Um, The glory of the Lord is going to depart from Israel, from the temple because of what they have done. And then you see him turn and start to comfort. And this is just the rhythm of this book is in chapter two, you get a really wonderful comfort for uh, the people in, in verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens up the breach uh, goes up before them. They will break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. A couple of times you see this shepherding imagery, which I know we'll come back to, and that's a reflection Mm -hmm. on the judgment. So the judgment and the restoration are similar in the sense that what you have is a corrupt and unrighteous leadership, kings and prophets. And what God promises is to come and actually lead them himself and to appoint righteous rulers over them who will lead them into the ways of God, not into the ways of the nations as they're as they're encountering right now. You're right. And as they go into chapter three, you get the serious condemnation of the rulers and the prophets. Think about that as the spiritual leaders of the people. For example, in chapter three, verse six, it says, uh, therefore, it shall be night to you without vision. This is speaking of the those who are seeking God, uh, who are not actually the prophets and rulers and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. In other words, they will not be able to see God's will. God will not speak to them. The seers will be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They'll all cover their lips because there's no answer from God. And so that's a serious condemnation. The idea that God will will not speak to those unfaithful leaders at some point, and then the whole nation will suffer because of that. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, back into chapter four opens with a beautiful passage. And you mentioned that this passage is also in Isaiah, but a little adder here in Micah at the end. But chapter four moves back to the idea of comfort in the future. 
Yeah, the vision of chapter four is the vision of what Israel should be like. If you go all the way back to the promise of Abraham, blessing the nations, being in the land, God is their God, they are his people. This is that vision. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the peoples and they, uh, he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is where the, the quotation or uh, the prophecy that Isaiah also quotes ends. And then what, what Micah does with this is really interesting. He says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord has spoken for all the peoples will walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. This is an ideal vision of what it will be like when Israel does return to the Lord. And of course, we know that this is fulfilled in Christ, and we know that in the New Jerusalem, this really is the way the world will be. Now, I wanted to point out something here. Um, this, The most famous verses in Micah are in chapters 5 and 6 in our time, which we'll talk about in right. a minute. But I didn't want to pass by here without saying this verse, chapter four, verse four, everyone shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and no one shall make them afraid is actually the, the most quoted passage of scripture among the American founding fathers. If you go through sermons from that time, if you go through the writings of Jefferson, Washington, John Adams, Ben Franklin, of course, there's a, a, a big mix about their religious beliefs, but they were all very literate in the Bible. Whatever they actually believed, the Bible was part of their everyday discourse. And so they all knew the Bible really well and referred to it fairly frequently. This is the most quoted passage in the American founding, and it was a vision for what America would be like. And, you know, there's a lot of discussions right now as America, a Christian nation, is that Christian nationalism? What was the intent? We can't settle all those disputes now, but I will say this. There was a vision among the founders, even those who we would probably consider today deists or some, some other form of belief in God without a true belief in Jesus Christ, that the plan for America would be that people would essentially follow God in freedom, sitting under their own vine, their own fig tree, property ownership obviously being uh, kind of the political angle of that, and no one would make them afraid. This is part of the religion, and this is part of the vision of America, and there is a religious component to it. Part of it was the standard morality of the day was very Judeo-Christian, but part of it too was they took these prophecies and they probably realized them a little bit too much in their own present situation. But we got to hand it to them. They wanted to see God do the things that he had promised. And so you get this vision a lot in the founding of America. That's a really important point, too, is it, regardless of their beliefs, their vision for this nation is informed by the Judeo-Christian history and by God's story. And just to contrast that a little bit, that makes all the difference for the future of that nation. Compare, for example, American ideals still at the very core, even though we may be you know, working on the fumes of the founders' vision is still this fundamental idea of prosperity for people, uh, sit under your own vine and not be afraid. Whereas, for example, today it would be easy to contrast. Vladimir Putin, what is his controlling story? What is the controlling idea behind it? It is 
the restoration of the glory of an ethnic group of people by refounding their empire. And that's a story that many nations have been and empires have been founded on. But it's one of the reasons, and what I'm going to say is a little controversial right now, but it's one of the reasons that America has by and large not been a conquer the world kind of nation. It's not founded with that kind of story. It's founded with a story of freedom and peace and prosperity. Now, you may argue whether or not we've done it well or not done it well, but if you just look at the history of the world, America has not particularly been a conquering nation. And I think that's rooted in this, this story. And I think it speaks a lot to why we have been called a Christian nation and why even now, when you peel away all the uh, ideologies, they're all still connected in some way to this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this vision, this biblical vision of people living under the rule of God at peace with each other, at peace within themselves, is a wonderful vision. I mean, in a lot of ways, who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? And we know, obviously, as Christians, that that can never be realized fully, even in a country like the United States of America. But we also realize that God is working towards these ends through his people, by his spirit. What Christians are doing is they are bringing about exactly what's described here. People who know God, who know his law, people who understand that God is not only sovereign, but involved in the everyday lives of his people. And we long for a time when this vision is actually true completely in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're kind of in a middle place. Like I said, maybe the founders saw this a little bit too much in their own time. I worry that we don't see this enough in our own time. We we, we punt everything to heaven and it's just going to be miserable here on earth until then. But we actually have work to do, not just in our own individual hearts, but in bringing about this kind of reality where people know God and live in ways that honor him. That's part of the Great Commission. So Micah gives a vision for that and then goes back to saying, and this is not what's currently going on in Jerusalem. And this is not what's currently going on in Israel. And he begins to say, woe to the nations again, woe to Israel. And uh, in chapter five, which is probably during the time of Sennacherib, we get a very famous passage because it's quoted in the New Testament. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. And I'm going to skip to verse four here. I just love this verse. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We read this now, and I think they probably read this then, as a promise of the coming Messiah, not just a king. Sometimes you'll see people say, no, they only thought that this was Hezekiah. But no, I really do think they looked ahead and saw that there would be a figure who accomplishes this perfectly. And uh, that's why it's a coming from of old, is that this is going to be God coming back to actually rule his people and shepherd them himself. And this connects to what we just talked about with this vision of the nation is in order to have a nation like we described, you have to have a ruler like this. And so you have to have Jesus being the ruler of his people. You have to have the kingdom of God in order to have the full vision of what Micah had prophesied that life would be like if if God is reigning and things are righteous and things are just the way that he described. So we get a little glimpse here quoted in Matthew about 
a ruler who is coming and he will be born in Bethlehem and he will reign in the power of the Lord and shepherd his people perfectly. And I just think of the places where Jesus looks out and he sees people that are like sheep without a Mm -hmm. shepherd. And when he says in John, I am the good shepherd, this is evoking these images from the book of Micah and from elsewhere uh, about what kind of leader Jesus will be against the backdrop of the corrupt and evil leaders of Israel. Yeah, I have a question for you about this. So in the time of Micah, this this is a beautiful prophecy, and it's basically saying there will come a Messiah who will be a true and better David, you know, the, the real shepherd and the, the real king forever. And he will be able to make a reality of the kingdom of God. And so I can understand how they're looking forward for that. Well, fast forward now to Matthew, as you said, he's saying what Micah talked about 700 years earlier, this is what is happening now. Here comes the true and better David. Here comes the shepherd who will uh, stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So now fast forward to you and me today. And here's my question. Should we read this as still a looking forward to the second coming of Jesus? And how much should we read this as in process right now? Well, this is one of the tricky parts of... uh, the prophetic vision of the Old and New Testaments. And I think the best way to describe this, as we talked about before, is an already and a not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So in one sense, this is already happening. Jesus did really inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. And um, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we are anything else. And so God is making the earth like heaven in that sense, that we are living out uh, by the Spirit, the things that he calls us to do. We are making disciples of the nations so that they will obey Christ. You know, we are seeing the kingdom expand in the world by spreading the gospel, by believing, by worshiping together as churches, by raising Christian kids. We are expanding the kingdom of heaven. However, we don't believe that the kingdom of heaven will be complete until we get to the point where Jesus returns We are with God. He is among his people. The vision that we see at the end of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, where um, Mm -hmm. God actually finalizes and completes his kingdom. And then it will be, uh, then it will no longer be not yet. It will be complete. It'll be already. So we are in the middle of this. In one sense, Jesus is shepherding his flock in the strength of the Lord. Uh, We are dwelling secure spiritually. Um, to the ends of the earth. He is our peace spiritually, and he is increasingly, over the broad picture of history, our peace in terms of the church expanding and people knowing God. But that won't be complete until Jesus comes again. So we're in a already, not yet, waiting, but also building period of the kingdom of God. What do you think? Yeah, I, I have some thoughts on this. And if You'll let me get philosophical for a minute. I think this is very interesting. First observation, we are not in the exact same situation as the people of Micah's time in this sense that while we too are looking forward to the consummation of the kingdom, we are not exactly in the same situation. It's like you said, we are in an inaugurated kingdom. We're in the middle of this. But the thing that really jumps out to me in this is very interesting difference in a secular idea and a Christian idea. A secular idea, an evolutionary idea says, we are going to fix this world 
we're going to impose justice, we're going to have the right laws, we're going to work on climate change, we're going to do all these things, we're going to perfect the human person, and then we will have this vision of peace and every man sitting under his own vine, etc. You start with this world to make the ideal. God began with making this a reality in the spiritual realm with the promise that that spiritual reality is going to reform and reshape the physical world. And I just think it's interesting to look at the different poles that this moves from. The secular world thinks you can perfect this world. God says the spiritual reality is going to redeem this world. So I don't know if that's a useful way of looking at it, but I just think it's interesting that God made the reality first spiritually, transforms our hearts, and now the universe itself is transformed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that vision captures a lot of what the prophets are speaking about in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. I want to hit two more things before we finish the book of Micah. The first one is in Micah 6, 8, which is probably the most famous verse in Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This, again, is a critique of the leadership of Israel, basically saying, look, this is the bottom line for how to be a good ruler in Israel. I worry mm -hmm. sometimes that we take this to be the sum of the Christian life because what it does is it takes a moral standard and replaces sin, repentance, redemption by Jesus Christ before what we end up doing, which is these things, you know, where Paul says, we, if you trust in Christ and you walk by the spirit, then you really do fulfill the law of love, but you can't fulfill the law and you can't fulfill the law of love before you've trusted in Christ. And so sometimes what you see in kind of a social justice gospel is um, all that God wants you to do is do justice, you know, as we define it, love kindness and walk humbly, which means don't take a big stand on things that would be theologically controversial. And I really don't think that's what Mike is talking about here. I think what he's doing is he's guiding the leaders in Israel to stop acting in corrupt ways, to do justice, to consider the poor, which we also are called to do. But we also know that we will never embody this on our own. What we have to do is trust in Christ, walk by the Spirit, and then we'll see that our marching orders are very similar. Justice, kindness, humility before God. That's kind of the fruit of the Spirit redux that's being born in our life as we follow God. Really good point. And just to add on to that, the typical social justice movement, whether it's religious or secular, tends to take this verse and use coercive mechanisms to make it happen. Whereas this verse in its context and in the New Testament context is, as you said, you can't do this on your own. This is going to be the result of an inner transformation of a heart change. And that's the fundamental difference to me. If you just boil it all down between a social justice movement and the true gospel, the gospel transforms individuals. The social justice movement, sooner or later, watch and you will see, is fundamentally an advocacy for coercion. And that's opting into the secular program rather than God's program. Right. So I want to be clear here. This, this is what we should expect from the Christian life, but it is right. not the gateway to the Christian life. Doing enough justice, being kind enough, being humble enough for God will not 
make you right with God. But if you are right with God, you will do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And so getting that order right is really important. And a lot of times you just see uh, kind of a sloppy shorthand for what the Christian life is without getting the order right on those two things. The last thing uh, I want to point to is the end of this book. So you almost come to a natural end at the end of chapter six, and you have what's kind of a standalone ending to the book. And I think this is really brilliant that this is the final word of the prophecy of Micah. We get a lament over unrighteousness, crying out to God, a solitary prophet who's crying out to God. And at the end, you get a big remembrance of what God has done. And this is just a great passage, starting in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon my vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. There's a vindication that comes for the people who wait for God and who trust in him. And uh, again, later, he says in verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Again, the shepherding leadership theme. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will, you will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This whole passage in chapter seven has a has an Exodus feel to it. It sounds a lot like mm -hmm. the song of Moses and Miriam. It sounds a lot like the people being delivered from Egypt. But Micah has a little bit different message. Instead of the people being delivered from Egypt, what you're seeing here is sin being taken out of the people of God through God's steadfast love and forgiveness. And this is really the end message of Micah is that it's going to take God forgiving and loving and waiting and being kind to take sin out of his people. And so this in and of itself is a prophecy of what Jesus will eventually do for God's people. And that will be the only way to really bring about righteousness and justice among the nations. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.